You may have to bear with me this morning as I try to preach to you. This has been uh, very close to my heart. But let's first read First uh, Peter 1, verses 3, uh, all the way to verse 9. Though the text of Scripture this morning will just be uh, verses 6 and 7. That's where we'll be focusing. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, though now you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, it is, a, it is a wonderful truth to sing this morning that God, You are good. And that is a truth that we can hold fast to at all times. We have so much, Lord, to rejoice in, to be thankful for. God, I pray this morning you'd help us to see, uh, see that this morning from this text. God, what great rejoicing the life of a believer should be, no matter the trials, no matter the circumstances, God. We thank you for what you've given us. in trials to help us and aid us. Father, please be with us. Let us uh, help me to be clear this morning. Um, Father, please help me uh, to encourage our brothers and sisters with your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I want to begin with an illustration if we uh, about a little bit about precious metals. We see here in Verse 7, Peter says that faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. And we know little, I think we all know little, we know the basics about what that purifying might mean, what it might do. And it's an example here, an illustration that Peter places in this text for us to keep in our minds. And I think it's a, a good one to think about. When, when metals are, are heated to high temperatures, such as gold, it, it, does a, it gets rid of any impurities. As we sang this morning, uh, the dross could be burned away. And what's left is your, your precious metal. 
There, there's different ways that this could happen. You could burn it and those impurities could just burn off. The, the metal liquefies and the impurities rise to the top and they're taken away. Or the impurities rise to the top and you add more uh, minerals that would absorb them and take them away. Either way, the heat that's placed on the metal by fire is what purifies it. There was a... In, in looking at this this week in my study, uh, there, was, there was a man who, um, he, he purchased a bunch of gold rings. Actually, the lead content in these gold rings, because they were only gold-plated, was, wouldn't allow them to be sold in the, the, the retail market for some reason. So he thought, I'll take these rings and I'll try to refine them and at least get what I can out of them of the gold. And so he, he, took, these, he took these rings and he put them in a in a a furnace and he he fired them up and according to the the person that he purchased them from that they should have been made up of 2 to 3% of gold in the plating and he put them on fire and the fire was up to 1400 and 1800 and I don't know what the final temperature it was but as he checked on the gold in the furnace as he looked at it you could see first it was it was dissolving into liquid and then it was burning then it was burning then the impurities were bubbling and rising out of it and then as he continued to check on it he had the whatever it was that the gold was placed in was a type of mineral the cup was made of a mineral that absorbed all of the impurities and all it would leave was the gold and and some silver. And so the man took these three rings and what he pulled out of that was just a little speck with a pair of tweezers after it was all over. And he weighed that, he weighed the pure metal, he put the pure metal on a scale and he weighed it in grams, it was five thousandths of a gram. And that man had been lied to. Because he was supposed to get 2 to 3% and what he started with was 16 grams. So he was about 100 times off or maybe even more of what he should have gotten from those gold rings. But he had to test it, right? The fire tested it and it proved what was in those rings that was pure gold and pure metal. And that's what the Lord does to us through trials. And it's good for us. It's good for us to know. And I pray that you'll know that this morning after we get um, into the text. Uh, the, the epistles here that we're looking at in First and Second Peter uh, were written obviously by the Apostle Peter. Uh, there are some people that may claim it wasn't. I think that's foolish. Right? As Michael Carr said last week, you can be wrong if you want to. But the Apostle Peter wrote these messages and they were so timely. But he walked with Christ. He was an eyewitness to his ministry, which he confesses to later in the book. And in the first verses, we read that he's writing to believers. He's writing to elect exiles, is what he says. Those elect exiles are are in different provinces in the Roman Empire. Most likely, the, the majority of them are Gentiles. But there's also some Jewish believers in these churches, uh, as we can see if we look back on the account of Pentecost and Acts. But the epistle, uh, 
The epistle's theme, the purpose, one purpose at least in, in Peter's writing, is to encourage brothers and sisters in the faith to persevere in this life with joy and always looking to Christ's past redeeming work, His present help, and the future consummation of it all. This letter, again, I said was timely. It's thought to have been written just years or maybe even months and delivered years or months just before uh, some major persecution in the Roman Empire by the emperor there, Nero. So it's timely. The Lord brought it to the people to encourage them. In verse 3, where we began to read, it begins the body of the letter. and, and um, So we'll turn our attention back to verse 3. We'll read again from verses 3 and stopping then at verse 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This morning I'd like to break down this, this text into kind of three, three headings or themes. The, the first one is rejoicing, uh, obviously, from the first four words of verse 6. The next is grieving from the rest of verse 6. And the last is enduring uh, from verse 7. So that's how uh, we will approach the text this morning. In verse 3 we start with that phrase, In this you rejoice. Or some translations have this, In this you greatly rejoice. Using the meaning of the term here, we could say, In this you jump for joy, or in this you exult and are glad. Maybe Tommy might say, In this day, uh, you give me one Ric Flair. Uh, but what is all this fuss about? What, what is this pointing us to? It's somewhat like the therefore, right? We have to figure out what it's there for. And we look back and we see Peter ties this term to the gospel truths of electing, his choosing us, of regeneration, his giving of a new birth, salvation, his saving us from his wrath, eternal reward, his giving of an inheritance in heaven, and perseverance is keeping us to the end that he's already written about in verses 2 to 5. The foundation of the Christian's constant state of rejoicing is in the work of God through Christ. That's our unshakable foundation. God, by His mercy, caused us to have new life when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God chose to make us alive. He opened our eyes. He regenerated us. He's also secured for us our inheritance with Christ in heaven. 
This inheritance, it says, is unending and priceless, kept in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. We know that. It's kept in the most secure of all places. And that's not all. God says in verse 5, He shields us and protects us, all those that are in His flock. We are by God's power being guarded through faith until the last days when Christ is revealed. Christ says in the Gospel of John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What greater source source then of joy do we Christians have? You see, every sound Christian has always something wherein he may greatly rejoice. Great rejoicing contains more than inward placid serenity of mind or sensation of comfort. It will show itself in the countenance and conduct, but especially in praise and gratitude. So to summarize from this this first phrase, in this you rejoice. My summary of this rejoicing would be that every Christian must stand firm in the foundation of our rejoicing, which is, as we sang this morning, is Christ. And when we say Christ, we say it's, it's all the work that Christ has completed. Everything that He has done that Peter mentions there in those first voice verses that we can look back to. A long list of His election and regeneration, salvation, the reward He's promised us, and, and the perseverance that He guarantees us. So moving on in the text, it says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved. The Apostle Peter has introduced a paradox here that is our reality that we live in today. We are to be always rejoicing. It says we do rejoice for the truths of God that He's given us. But sometimes grieving. We Christians are to take joy in the beautiful truths of the gospel of Christ. Yet, in our daily pilgrimage, we can be sad, sorrowful, and distressed at some present circumstances. And as we all have probably experienced, there is grief and heaviness everywhere when living in a fallen world. Just consider our small church here. There's sickness and disease. We're infected by viruses and pass them back and forth, especially in large families with several children. We're affected by asthma and allergies, struggling to complete everyday tasks without, with, with struggling to breathe. Some are affected with cancer and fighting to live as long as they can. Others here are affected by ongoing and recurring illness, nagging things that just does not allow you to function normally anymore. There's accidents that cause thousands of dollars worth of damage to property. There's accidents that incur physical hurt and pain from falls that leave us laying on our backs for days or weeks, that leave us out of work even for extended amounts of times. There's people in our body who've lost jobs for standing on the truth of, of their conscience based on the Word of the Lord. 
Mothers suffer difficulties in pregnancy that lead to miscarriage or premature births that keep a baby from coming home for over 91 days. There's death and loss with funerals for fathers and mothers. And we could cry out, God, why don't you relent? But let's not do that yet. Let's not do that yet. At least not until we're given the right perspective of our text this morning. The right perspective of these trials and how we retain this rejoicing. The joy of our salvation should always remain unshaken by this grief that we experience. For nothing can change what the Lord has done. And we can gain strength in our grief by examining verse 6. The context of the, the grief described here is first for a little while. For a little while. Unlike the inheritance that awaits the believer in heaven that will be revealed in the last days, our grief has an expiration date. Psalm 30 verses 4 and 5 say, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Whether our sorrow and distress lasts for hours, or days, or weeks or months, or years. It is just a little while in comparison to our eternity with Christ and what's been promised to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 emphasizes this. Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We've got to have that perspective when we approach this grief. Another word here is so very helpful for us to put our grief into perspective. It's that term necessity or necessary. The word says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The term here has a sense of binding. That, that this trial, this grief, it's bound to your life. It's going to occur. It must, it must happen. And you might ask, well, how is that helpful? How is it helpful for us to encounter grief just by knowing it will come? To say that we're prepared only because we know and expect it is not what comforts us. The comfort should come from knowing who determines the necessity. And that's God. The Lord knows us and has determined the weight and measure of all our griefs. The Scripture doesn't leave us to guess if our sorrows are meaningless or just happenstance. Let me say that again. The Scriptures don't leave us to guess if our sorrows are meaningless or happenstance. It's not just your luck or your lack thereof. Every sadness and stress comes as God's sovereign hand moves it forward. And it is good. 
The quote from Matthew Henry says, God does not afflict His people willingly, but acts with judgment in proportion to our needs. These troubles that lie heavy never come upon us, but when we have need, and never stay any longer than needs must. That's our comfort. The Lord is in control. He's sovereign over these things. And He does it not by happenstance, but with purpose. And it's not easy. It's grief. It's, it's momentary. It's for a little while, but it can feel like a long time. Spurgeon also writes of the value of heaviness. I thought I can't say this any better. I'll just read it. I think that in heaviness or grief, we often learn lessons that we could never attain elsewhere. Do you know that God has beauties for every part of the world? And He has beauties for every place of experience. There are views to be seen from the tops of the Alps that you can never see elsewhere. But there are beauties to be seen in the depths of the dell that you could never see on the tops of mountains. There are glories to be seen on Pisgah, wondrous sights to behold when by faith we stand on Tabor. But there are also beauties to be seen in our Gethsemanes, and some marvelously, marvelous, marvelously sweet flowers are to be culled by the edge of the dens of leopards. Men will never become great in divinity until they become great in suffering. Luther said, Affliction is the best book in my library. And let me add, the best leaf in the book of affliction is that blackest of all leaves, the leaf called heaviness. When the Spirit sinks within us and we cannot endure as we could wish. So what's the summary or the application of this truth from the end of verse 6? That though now for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. It's to remember, this. it's just for a little while. And for every bit of that time, God is in control of your grief. And it is always by necessity. There is need to be purified. There is need for you to grieve. But do it with joy. So it brings us then to verse 7. Verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the source of our grief in verse 6 stems from trials. We could read verse 7 and just say, various, grieve by various trials so that, again. First, I want to define what, what the term for trials in verse 6 is. You may be wondering why I hadn't done this already, but I thought to save it for the encouragement we received for verse 7. Trials are a putting to proof, and more specifically, a state of trial in which God brings His people through adversity and affliction to encourage and prove their faith and confidence in Him. 
Many, many times I forget, and maybe you as well, this definition and purpose of a trial. I forget that it's not something I'm just supposed to survive. Something that I'm just supposed to get to the end of without dying. Just accept it as my lot and stoically grin and bear it. A trial in life is a proving ground. As, we'll ex- as, as I will expound, it's a proving ground for our faith. And who benefits from this proof of faith through trial? Is it the Lord? Is it the Lord that says, Oh, I don't, I don't know the power of your faith, so let me test you to see. Did the Lord do that for, for Job? Did the Lord test Job so that, so that he could see who Job was? No, we know. We, we, we get the background scene there. That that proof was because God knew Job would endure, because he would do it. But he was to prove to someone else. He was proved to Satan in that, in that instance. But no, it's not for God. It's not necessary for him uh, to know the extent of your faith. He already knows it. As was said this morning in our exhortation. He sees all. He knows all. He's everywhere. So what does that mean? Well, the Lord knows our faith. He's the cause of it. But we are the benefactors of our trials. We are the benefactors of our trials. They're meant for us to know endurance. They're meant for us to to set firm our faith because of what the Lord brings us through. Look at the text. Verse 7 provides us with a clear purpose and reward of such trials. Verse 7 begins with, So that, as you hear David say many times, this is the purpose clause. So that... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? What is the, just this tested genuineness of our faith? Another meaning for this term, the meaning for this term here is trustworthiness. That we should see as well as those around us the trustworthiness of our confession and faith in Christ upon examining our experience through trials. It's for us to trust what we believe in. It's for us to have seen the proof of our faith. If in the midst or at the end of an earthly trial we find ourselves unhitched from the Word, from trusting Christ and God's great plan for us, if we find ourselves pursuing our lust or to forget the woes of suffering, we and our brothers and sisters around us are to take that as a warning. It's a grace and it's a warning. There's no proof of a man's faith who turns from the truth in trial. But on the other hand, when we experience or observe the refining and strengthening of our own or another's faith in trial, it's a beautiful testimony of the trustworthiness of the gospel of Christ and His work in us. Again, that's the foundation for our rejoicing even in grief. 
The text says of faith here that it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And I spoke basically of what that purifying might look like as an opening illustration. So then the Apostle Peter likens this process to that of refining or purifying our faith, that it may be trusted and rewarded. That impurities are burned up and discarded and things that we don't need are removed. Could be doubt, could be fears, could be pride. They're, they're taken away. And he makes a point to say that gold, which is of only earthly value because it ultimately perishes, is refined and purified by fire. Therefore, faith, which is of heavenly value and imperishable, ought to be refined by the fiery trial to prove its trustworthiness. If we, if we take the time, the effort to purify this things on this earth that perish and that will, will ultimately pass away, how much more then is it important to see how our faith should be purified in trial. It is a good and gracious thing to know our faith is tried and true. And when our faith is proven, or it will be found, or another way to say, taught by experience, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This praise and glory and honor is ours. Yes, we share it with Christ at His revealing, but the Word says that we are to receive a crown of glory. That will be given to us. That we will share in the praise and the glory and the honor in the last days. So the Lord, He's so gracious to us. Not only does He show us what, what, the, what the reason for the trial is as we walk through it here on this earth, but also, He says, it's also to claim this reward. That we might have confidence and trusting in our faith that God has given us through our time here on earth. A summary then of this last point. Again, it was rejoicing and grieving and now enduring. We can endure the fiery trial because we know in our minds who's in control of the trial and what it's for. Trials are to prove our faith. They're for our benefit. We're the benefactors. And it's going to result in our reward, the praise and glory and honor at the coming of Christ. So I hope this morning that that's where our trust lies in those solid truths of the gospel, to know that we are rejoicing in that always, yet sometimes grieving for our present circumstances in this fallen world, and yet we are enduring. That brings us to the table this morning. This morning it's so beautiful to share um, in, the, in the taking of the elements together. The text of Scripture that's always read and uh, brings up what we say in Corinthians says that we proclaim the Lord's death. 
And in that we know that we're, we're proclaiming more. We're proclaiming everything that was determined before the foundation of the world. We're proclaiming that God has worked in us. And God is still working in us and He will bring that work to completion.